millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing what's gone wrong with policing in the UK. The Conservatives and Labour are competing to be the party of law and order and focusing on policing failures as the next election looms. Last month, the government released data that showed it had hit its target to recruit, or rather restore, 20,000 police officers by spring this year. But will this fix the systemic problems in UK policing? In light of policing scandal after scandal and the Casey Review, which found the Metropolitan Police institutionally racist, misogynist and homophobic, we're delighted to be joined by Matt Lloyd-Rose, a former special constable in South London, who's thought a lot about why policing isn't working and has brought out a brilliant book about it called Into the Night, A Year with the Police. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Anoush. Great to be here. Could you start off by telling our listeners what you actually did and when in the police? Yes, yeah, so I was a primary school teacher in South London. Actually, that was my first job. Went and taught wonderful seven-year-olds in Brixton in South London. I lived a five-minute walk from my school and felt like a real part of this community. I'd bump into parents in the street and really got a sense of this place and kind of fell in love with this place. But I stepped out of the classroom after a couple of years and moved into a kind of behind-the-scenes educational research job but thought, I really want to stay plugged into this community. I want to get to know it better. Some of the children that I taught had quite challenging lives outside school. There are a few with older siblings in gangs or who had witnessed domestic abuse at home. And I was keen to get deeper into my community and to understand the challenges that faced the young people there a bit more. And was on the tube one day in London and saw this advert for special constables, for volunteer police officers who have full police powers. You get police training, you can arrest people, search people, do all the things police do. You just look like a normal police officer, but you're unpaid and you go out normally on a Friday or a Saturday night when they need more police officers on the street. And it just got under my skin, this idea of, I didn't imagine myself being a police officer, but actually, wouldn't this be the most remarkable way both to get closer to this community, but also to get close to the issues that are really challenging within this community, the domestic abuse, the serious youth violence, the mental health, to really see those things at their most raw. And so I signed up and became a police officer and went out on Friday nights with the Met Police 
actually over a period of about three years, the book is compressed into a year and we've called it a year with the police and it's Brick gives a sense of that journey in a slightly more coherent way. But I was actually involved with the Met over a period of about three years and went and experienced all of it from rushing to the fights outside bars or responding to the gang stabbings that I'd been reading about in the newspapers mm. right through to lighter things like chasing an escaped Jack Russell down Brixton High Street <laughs> and desperately trying to trap it before it got squashed by a bus. Or dealing, responding to the illegal hot dog trade on Clapham High Street. There's like remarkably resilient, independent street traders. But yeah, so I saw everything and it was, yeah, the most remarkable mind-expanding experience, really. When was this? So I finished in 2015. So there's a gap of a few years. It's taken me a few years to process, research, talk to people, absorb the whole experience but that's the kind of time scale and in the book you're reflecting it's a very it's a very cleverly written book because you give us scenes from being out on the beat and then you go often to a cafe where you eat bubble and squeak i think in mm. brixton market is that right yeah the phoenix cafe now defunct but it's a wonderful place well you go there and you reflect on what you've seen and how things have worked and the things that often disturb you about the workers as well and i wonder because you're bringing this book out at a time where you, we could say that policing is in crisis in this country mm. i wonder if you think that those scandals that have happened since you've left the Met that we've heard about time and time again, sometimes very tragic stories, whether they've affected the way that you look back on your experience? It's been really curious actually having this time lag between finishing policing and working on it, thinking about it, and then almost seeing this kind of slow reveal of the things that had really troubled me while I was policing becoming more and more visible and explicit to the public so Mm. yeah definitely and I think it's been really I think I've been on a real journey as well seeing I was very troubled by for example the casual misogynistic chat in the van but I think even at the time I I don't think that at the time I could have connected that to the very real abuse and violence, the bit of the domestic abuse that was that's now coming out amongst police officers that we're now aware of, like the horrendous murder of Sarah Everard. At the time, I was appalled by that culture of sexism and misogyny, but I don't think I was astute enough at the time to get a sense of just how much that was on a spectrum with this very real-world violence and abuse. So certainly the experience of reflecting on policing whilst certain things have become more and more apparent about that institution yeah it's been, it has been formative for me and so this is mm. it's a book written about a moment a few years ago but also written in the light of what we've come to to learn over the last few years mm. and because you mentioned it tell us a bit about what that misogyny was like in in each of your shifts was it defining the atmosphere in the police van how regular was it how much of a part of the culture was it so it really felt a little bit like the air we breathed sometimes that mm. there were there were specific moments you in, depending on which office you officers you were out with or you be in a van some nights and it would be very explicit i remember in one of my very first shifts driving along clapham high street and the officers who were taking us out there said we were going to go talent spotting and literally commenting on and essentially rating women in the street on Clapham High Street looking out of the window making really lewd remarks about that Mm. and I remember that really made me sit up because I'd just come from being a primary school teacher (laughs) and which to me felt like a kind of adjacent 
social role. And it was this dissonance of, gosh, we could never have made comments of anything like that within our role. And yet somehow this is okay here. And I think so it went from those very stark moments right through to just background chat just driving along and mm-hmm. someone saying which Spice Girl do you think has aged best and launching into that conversation or define think of a film title that defines your sex life and expecting everyone to mm-hmm. participate in that so more of a kind of light-hearted light-hearted seeming banter but I think what struck me about it was whether it felt kind of predatory or whether it felt light-hearted it was almost like a kind of currency of workplace connection that if you weren't willing to get involved in that, you'd quite quickly feel sidelined. So I think it was the sort of situation for a lot of officers, I think, where even if that might not have been their natural style, you've got a kind Mm. of decision. Do I get on board with this and get involved with this or do I tap out and sideline myself and shut down? Yes, certainly I've found it to be very pervasive. And I think there's a bit in the book where you're trying, because you're making notes while this stuff is happening, you're trying to write down what people are saying, the sexist things they're saying, and you have to hide it underneath your legs in the end because you really don't want to see anyone seeing what you're writing down, I think I remember from the book. Yeah, so it's funny because I didn't go into this planning to write a book. I really... I'm like an inveterate volunteer and I've done all sorts of different volunteering Mm. and this was the next manifestation of that. But I'm also a real kind of crazy diarist and I've always written everything down and Mm. I always have a notebook in my pocket and from the very start of policing I had this inkling that what I was witnessing was not only fascinating but also really important and so I from the very first shift took minute notes out, out on out on the shift I would jot things down but certainly at first that didn't because police officers have got little notebooks people are writing stuff down all the time it felt fairly innocuous but then you're right that there was this moment of writing down these sexist comments and suddenly thinking oh gosh what if someone asks what I'm doing what Mm. what if someone asked to see these notes and feeling almost quite frightened about that and not quite sure what territory I'd stepped into because I wasn't there as an investigative reporter trying to do Mm. an expose I was there as someone who was interested in the community but also feeling like I do need to document this. Okay. And on the misogyny, how did how do you think it affected the way that the officers that you were working with did their work? Because I think I remember from your book there is a reluctance to go out to domestic violence calls, for example. Was that because of a misogynistic outlook or was it because that work was just so difficult to do and the caseload was so high? Yeah, that's a really difficult question, actually, Anusha. I'm not sure what the kind of ratio <laughs> is there, but certainly the raw issue was that I think police officers felt or certainly the officers I worked with felt like they could have very little impact on domestic abuse situations they frequently were re-attending properties that they'd attended multiple times before, the paperwork around domestic abuse is deliberately very intensive because the Met Police recognises that it has traditionally handled those very badly so it puts a lot of almost paperwork style checks in place to make sure that you ask all the questions that you properly investigate, you properly document but that makes officers even more reluctant to attend. Mm. It's funny I remember my the first night that I went out and went into the police station there was a poster on the wall that said urgent means urgent domestic abuse situations are attended I can't remember what it was but something like two and a half minutes more slowly than mm-hmm. other emergency calls and you felt that in the van the call would come out a domestic abuse call would come out and they came out with just like numbing frequency I think that was another thing that 
it made me realise just how, certainly how little I'd appreciated what an enormous issue that is and just the scale of it. But the call would often come out and there'd just be this silence. So there'd be this call coming into kind of police cars across the borough and there'd just be the silence. And frequently the operator would have to say, look, I need someone to take this. I need someone to go to this. And then, wow. But by contrast, a fight would come out and everyone would and you'd get eight cars all signing up to go, even though you didn't really need eight cars, but it was exciting. Oh, God. It's tricky, though, because I did also... I could see where the cynicism had come from, whilst I don't think there's a place for cynicism within the police. But at the same time, I could understand how that feeling of being deeply ineffectual, not understanding what the plan is, what the mission is, mm. what are they... What are you meant to... How are you meant to improve this situation? So I, I could see how that feeling of... I haven't been effective all these other times. I don't feel like I'm making this any better. All I'm going to do is have to write a form for three hours. I could see where that cynicism came from. And so there was a sense of whilst it's we need the police to step up and do what they and, and answer the calls they're being sent to. Also, in the absence of a better plan for responding to domestic abuse, I can understand why police officers find that really frustrating as well. So I mm. think it's one of those things where I feel like there's quite a lot of areas where we need to be really critical of the police, but we also need to step back and take some responsibility as a wider society for the fact that the police are often patching over the fact that we haven't come up with a better way of dealing with this. So the police go deal with it ineffectively and then just keep doing that over and over again. That's so interesting because in the book you make that point over and over again, you're going to things that aren't really... Should, aren't even necessarily what you'd imagine would be police responsibility. A lot of it is coming across homeless people and trying to work out what to do with them or certain people who are in a spiral in their lives and again and again they fall into crisis. And it's like that thing that police officers often say where they're being having to be social workers at the same time as trying to fight crime, for example. I don't know whether or not those jobs you think are for the police or whether or not the police have to be you have we have to rethink the role of the police in terms of what the actual social needs are yeah it's a really curious one because you have this odd paradox where almost everything that the police are called out to do in a busy borough like lambeth is actually responding to these kind of delicate complex caring situations of one kind or another you can chase around after a teenage robber and think it's and feel like you're fighting crime but really you're interacting with a vulnerable young person in that moment you can go and move some people begging along the road and feel like you've i don't know like laid like upheld order or something move some people begging away from cash points but really you've just disrupted some really vulnerable people and without having any kind of positive impact on them. And so there's this real disconnect, this real paradox where I found that most police officers still felt like their job was to fight crime, catch criminals, catch bad guys, as I often heard. But really, when you thought about it, and you thought, who are these criminals? What are these crimes? And really, it's very vulnerable people frequently trapped in these damaging cycles. And I found that mindset that we had of, we're going to go and fight crime prevented us from seeing the reality of the situation was that we are going to interact with some people who really need some support and are really trapped in a difficult situation and it meant that we ended up controlling people who were really in need of care and enabling the societal 
lack of care in the process, mm. almost the fact that we were controlling individuals, like dealing with, I don't know, taking someone and locking them up for the night. Like, it, it enabled the fact that there weren't the structures in place in society to, yeah. to care for those individuals. And police officers often said to me, like, I'm not, I'm not a social worker. I'm not here to be a social worker. And I understood that. They're not trained to deal with those situations. Mm. They don't want to be dealing with those situations. It's deeply frustrating to feel ineffective over and over again. And again, the when the bar fight would come out and everyone would rush over there, it's really unappealing to think of to think of that reality that police officers just want to go and grab people and pin them to the ground. But also it's appreciating that in that moment that's a situation in which they can feel effective mm. and think this is a problem that I'm equipped to solve and right. I've gone and I've solved it and I can feel good about myself rather than go into this other thing I don't feel equipped to solve and where I'm going to go I'm not I'm going to feel really ineffective I'm probably going to come away feel bad about myself and have a load of paperwork and have a boring evening and so there's a real mismatch I think and I think some of the language we use of crime fighting and criminals in it can often end up masking the more complex realities and we need to I think peel back some of these layers and as you say rethink what is the role of the police? What are we doing? What is our response to these complex social issues? Who needs to respond to these kinds of issues? Is it the police? Is it some reimagined version of the police? But I think those are the kind of big questions that we need to dig into in order to make this better for everyone. I don't think like the police, this situation isn't working for the police either. Like They're, mm-hmm. not, enjoying, they're not having a great time either. So like, they're not doing a great job, but they're also... There, it's, it's also purgatorial for them. Something needs to change for them as well. So I think we're in a posi- we're in a moment where it's in everyone's interest to reimagine this. Yeah. After the break, we'll chat about potential solutions to the problems with policing that we've been discussing. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So you talk about rethinking the role of the police. What kind of fixes would you implement having seen it from the inside that would mean that it works better both for the police but also the people that they interact with? I think one of the key things we need to stop doing is is thinking about fixing the police or is beginning with the idea of fixing the police or tweaking the mm. police. I feel like there's in a way the police are a 
they're a tool. They're a kind of a tool or an asset within society that need to be that need to be focused on a particular purpose. And so I think we need to almost put that tool to one side for a moment and think of it, think first about okay, here are the challenges we're trying to address. Let's like list them out. Let's mental health over mm. here, and loneliness, domestic abuse, serious youth violence, homelessness. Here are these challenges. What outcomes do we want? What do we want to see in our communities? What what would a resilient, thriving community look like? And then what would it take to do that? What sort of resources, what sort of support, what sort of skills do we need to do that? And in certain cases, we may find that it's not really the police that are the appropriate people to deal with this, or it's the police have a role in it, but actually mental health specialists have a much bigger role, mm. supported by the police, or actually it's youth workers within communities who have a really key role with police on standby if required to, to step in. So almost I think the police, the the severity of the issues of the police can mean that we can get a slightly tunnel visioned of like, how do we change this institution? Let's change vetting, let's do this. Yes. But, and not that we shouldn't do those things, but I think fixing the police is not going to answer those more important questions for us. We're just going to end up with a slightly better version of a thing that's not working and that's right. not fit for purpose. And so actually I think it's once we've got a bit more clarity on what we actually want to see, then we can define the police role, I think, in a way that will be a lot clearer for everyone. And just hearing what you say, it sounds like common sense, but politically very difficult for politicians to call for something like that without seeming soft on crime. I'm doing inverted commas, I know that, mm. our listeners can't see me doing that. And we're coming up to election and you have both parties trying to paint themselves as the party of law and order. Rishi Sunak's been calling Keir Starmer so softy on crime and Keir mm. Starmer has been saying we need more bobbies on the beat, which is a sort of political cliche that we often hear from every party across the political spectrum. And they've just recruit recruited these 20,000 new police officers, although they did cut over that amount over the course of various Conservative governments. Do you think that the political cycle and sort of electoral politics mean that we're stuck in this? We're stuck in this trap of, like you say, small tweaks, quick fixes to something that's not actually working in the first place? I think about this a lot, Anush, and I, I work in the world of social impact and social change and talk to lots of people about these questions. And the biggest barrier that people raise when I talk to them is around political will. It, there's not there's a sense that actually we do know what works. There's a load of great answers. There are a load of things we can point to that are working, but actually is there the political will? And are we at a moment in the kind of public conversation around the police where there's where we're ready to reconceptualize the role of the police? So I I think I think it's really worth highlighting that as as probably the key barrier at the moment that actually if we had the will we're not short on solutions I think the re one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was a sense that we need new imaginative resources to have a richer more reality based conversation about the police and about the issues that we send police out to deal with and 
I think a- another thing that I'd love to see more of is a real highlighting and spotlighting of the places within the system where things really are working. And the thing that makes me most hopeful mm. is when you look across the system, there are places where people are responding really effectively to mental health within communities with more hybrid models and with mental health specialists accompanying police, those pilots that are really that are showing like really exciting progress. There are areas that are treating serious youth violence as a public health issue and taking a completely different, much less enforcement-driven approach. And that's having enormous results for young people. And I think the thing that gives me most hope in a way is not that we can win some sort of abstract argument, but actually that we can point to and spotlight enough communities around the UK that are really moving the dial for the most vulnerable groups within society and say look like it's happening here and actually that raises the bar for all of us it beca- I, I hope that there'll be a tipping point where it becomes awkward for certain police forces not to be getting the results that that other areas are starting to get by actually following the evidence and piloting things that really work. Okay, so it's good to have a glimmer of hope at the end of the interview. Mm. I just want to ask you one more question. You started by saying you wanted to do this role because you wanted to feel closer to your community. How did it make you feel in terms of your relationship with your community when you were doing it? Because I think you feel as if there's a sort of, you know, there's a glass barrier that's put between you and your the place where you live and that you love and that you've brought your children up in. Yeah, absolutely, Anoush. It was really intriguing because... As a police officer, you have this remarkable access to people. You can talk to anyone at any given moment. It's very easy to get near people. But actually, I often felt like policing Brixton, we were more like a sort of external agency who'd been dropped in to supervise or monitor the community rather than this like deeply embedded part of the community. I remember one police officer one evening saying, I hate the public. And another police officer <laughs> saying, I hate to tell you, but you are the public sometimes. <laughs> but there was this, there was a sense sometimes of, a mm. quite literal sense of, of division between police and public. And because of the suspicion that surrounded police, often that became self-reinforcing with police officers feeling very defensive because they felt like they weren't welcome or wanted in certain areas. Mm. So certainly the, I didn't feel like we loved our community and were part of our community in the way that I felt like the teachers and social workers I knew who worked within communities felt. But one hopeful thing that I did see was that there were individuals within the police who were deeply committed to communities who did a lot of almost invisible things. I went one of my final shifts, I went out with an officer who just we were walking around in the state in South London and this officer like knew all, I, who was in all of the houses we were knocking on knocked on the door of an elderly lady who had very few contacts and connections in the area went in and had a chat with her that was it we just went in and had a chat with her and then we left 10 minutes later but he did that all the time mm. when he went and checked up on a family whose son had learning difficulties and who had been experiencing a lot of bullying in the local area and checked in and again all we did was just go in and have a chat and check they were okay and see how it was going then we left there's no record of those that Mm -hmm. doesn't get written down anywhere it's just something that this officer was committed to doing and he knew and loved that local area and so I think there are individuals within that institution who are swimming against the tide in a way and offering again visions of how things could be done better And I think if we can start celebrating that sort of behaviour instead of 
the more gung ho, heroic yeah. seeming behavior, then we'll start tacking towards something that's a lot more fit for purpose. And of course, the history of policing in Brixton in particular is fraught with racism. But of course, we've had stories of police racism very recently, all the time. And I just we've spoken about the misogyny, but I just wondered if you could reflect on the racism that you witnessed. Yeah, absolutely. It was really curious because the nature of the institutional racism was very different or seemed very different to me to the nature of the institutional misogyny. There was a kind of wild unruliness to the misogyny. It was this really unchecked culture that felt very blatant, almost irreproachable, whereas the effect of the Met being told they were institutionally racist in the wake of the McPherson report means that they're theoretically tried to do a lot of things to become less institutionally racist. So I noticed officers being very careful with their language about race. I saw officers challenging each other on their language around race. But equally, I was very conscious that the actual outcomes that we were achieving were racist. If you looked at the statistics of how likely are you to be stop and searched if you are a young black person versus a young white person in Brixton, how likely are you to die in custody. The outcomes for different groups, the, the differentials are stark. So the institutional racism is, you can't hide from that. It's really clear in all of the police data, but it's we're in a different sort of place with that, where the Met feel like they've dealt with it, but right. equally the principles and the practice are two very different things. You'd have officers saying, I, I'm not racist, but then having a practice that actually is racist. Mm. But so in a way, the approaches needed to address the institutional misogyny and institutional racism are probably connected, but also slightly different. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for coming in. And the book is called Into the Night, A Year with the Police, and it's out now. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks, Anish. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my guest, Matt Lloyd-Rose. We'll be back on Thursday when we'll be talking about the week in politics. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from past podcasts on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for the New Statesman. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. <laughs>